Welcome to Things Survivors Wish You Knew, a podcast by Dressember that passes the mic to survivors of human trafficking and commercial sexual exploitation. I'm your host, Blythe Hill, and along with my co-host, Stephanie Schindler, we are thrilled to share our conversation with Wade Arvisu in this episode. Wade is a writer, author, speaker, and human trafficking consultant. He brings a wealth of knowledge about the added difficulties that those with LGBTQ identities have in finding exit pathways from human trafficking. Sometimes advocates have good intentions, but how do those intentions translate? What is the actual impact? Join us as we get into it about what it means to work from a place of being trauma-informed and bring marginalized voices to the table. Please be aware that this episode contains references to familial trafficking, child trafficking, and rejection due to sexual orientation. Please take care of yourselves when deciding whether to listen to this particular episode. Want to make an impact in your community and around the world in a fun and relatively easy way? Join Dressember in the fight against human trafficking. Thousands of advocates worldwide participate in a quirky style challenge every year by wearing a dress or a tie for 31 days in December to fundraise for international anti-trafficking efforts. Use the style challenge as a way to start conversations with your community about human trafficking and what we can do to end it. We know fundraising can be intimidating, so we have all the resources you need to hit the ground running, and we're with you every step of the way. Become an advocate today at dressember.org slash fundraise. Hello, Wade. It's so wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. We are really excited for this very important conversation about the barriers that survivors with marginalized identities come up against, either in recovery services or in survivor leadership in the anti-trafficking movement. Um, it's it's a really important thing to discuss, and we're so grateful that you'll be spending that time with us today lending your expertise. Yeah, it is a it's a really important um, thing that I know, you know, people have been talking a little bit more about recently, I feel like, and that's a good thing. And I also, you know, want to point out in this discussion, I know I'm going to share a little bit personally about my experiences and also those that I've worked with. Um, but like, while I do recognize myself, since I am a transgender man, as a person who carries a marginalized identity, I also want to recognize that I carry a lot of privilege outwardly, and that I can't necessarily speak for all marginalized communities. Um, I just like to put that out there because I feel like, you know, it's really important that we all have very different experiences. Um, But I want to make sure that I am able to share, you know, some of those that I've experienced and also what I've witnessed through the work that I do. Mm. Thank you so much for clarifying that. Yeah, it's it is really important to note that the survivor experience is such a vast spectrum based on identities, lived experiences, intersectional vulnerabilities. So um, I really appreciate you offering that lens. So I'd love to start off by discussing what gaps in services or barriers to to recovery that you've come up against in your healing journey. Yeah. um, So when I think about some of the the gaps and the barriers and services when it comes to recovery, I think it really varies based on, you know, where in that timeline we're looking at. I think that, you know, there's this sort of idea that the recovery journey and that the life journey in general is linear. And I think 
any of us who are human, which should be all of us, um, would would recognize that that's just not how it really is. Um, and so I think that it's really kind of kind of changed. It's it's evolved, and I experienced multiple types of trafficking at different periods of my life. And so uh, the first time that I experienced trafficking was. Um, through a familial trafficking. So it was by somebody who married into my family. Um, and that was, you know, at a younger age from like eight to 16 years old. And my um, experience was very rural. And so that was an entirely different experience than some of the other experiences I had later, um, as were the gaps, right? So like, um, so before I get into that question, I'm, I'll just give like a little bit of background because I think that will, um, you know, kind of help and and help me sort of separate those those different parts out. But um, so after that period, um, I went to a program where I was, you know, it's basically a, a a group home or like a residential shelter um, where I was supposed to be getting help. And while I definitely think that there were some pieces and some good things that came out of it, I came out of my situation, you know, I maybe was a little safer. Um, there was a lot of harm that was experienced in that space as well, particularly because of the identities that I carry as a, as a transgender person, as a queer person. Um, and so the second time that I experienced trafficking was actually after being kicked out of that program, um, really for my gender identity and my sexual orientation. And so um, I would say that that, you know, kind of second time around was a very different experience, even when I had, um, you know, experienced trafficking while the first time was sort of through family and something that was not really controllable. Um, not that any of it is controllable, but um, I think the situation was just really different since it was, I was so much younger um, and didn't really have much control at all over my environment. And the second time around was experiencing homelessness um, and recognizing that I didn't want to go back to the family that caused me harm. And yet the place that I went for help wasn't actually helpful. So like, now what do I have? And so that experience and like the barriers that I had at that point, I feel like were, you know, even much different than before. Um, and then to fast forward even a little bit beyond that, um, you know, I spent a few years in homelessness. I engaged in, you know, the commercial sex industry at the time. I just self-identified as a sex worker. Um, and, you know, that was something that I did really for survival, just to be able to, you know, provide for myself. Um, but, you know, recognizing that looking at, at the at the federal definition of trafficking, because I was still under the age of 18 when that happened, um, you know, I, I did still... Uh, I, I technically would have been considered by federal law a trafficking victim, and that's something that's often not really looked at either. Um, so, you know, from there, um, there was a second time around where I was like, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to go to a place where I can get help and went through a program um, that that really was ended up exploiting the people who were in the program through labor trafficking and would really actually send us out to these labor camps where we would do a lot. I mean, I won't get into all of the details because that's just not what we're going to talk about today. But um, I just think it's important. And, and I know something we'll touch on again is just how layered the experience of trauma and trafficking is. And there isn't always like, you know, here's the single answer to this, but um, that there are often very different answers for very different periods. And I would say that at each of those periods of my life, my needs were very different. Um, what I needed in recovery was different. And the difficulties that I had and the lack of options that I had sort of led me to those places um, that I en ended up seeking um, help with. I really appreciate you sharing that context. Um, it's something that we hear a lot 
when we don't fully address the vulnerabilities of what maybe caused folks to become trafficked in the first place, it's really unfortunate to see how often victims and survivors of trafficking are re-victimized and how many times they either go back to the life or um, are found in that situation again. So I appreciate you sharing the different layers of your experience and how, yes, of course you would have different needs at different times. And so um, throughout your experience, could you share some of the ways that you tried to seek help and what you ended up finding (laughs) as you came up against walls in the system? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that, um, that there were a lot of times that I sought out help from, from different people. And, you know, like a lot of survivors of trauma, particularly those who experienced abuse in childhood, I developed this understanding that, you know, while we were told you can ask adults for help and adults are here to help you and programs are here to help you. My experiences taught me differently. Um, and so, you know, when I was, a child, there were multiple attempts where, you know, obviously my trafficking was occurring within my family. And so um, those standard people that you would think would be, you know, protectors weren't the people that I could really go to. Um, And outside of that, you know, there were spaces like I would develop maybe a close relationship with a teacher or um, somebody that, you know, started to feel like a safe person that maybe I could talk about something with. Um, And just, you know, there, even with the, the, I, I don't think like laws is the right word, but like the practice, the requirements that are in place for protecting children, even like when it comes to like mandatory reporting and like what, when something needs to be reported to a parent, when, when a kid behaves a certain way at school, like there are all of these things that are set up systemically to assume that home is safe and that home is the place where, you know, the parents make sure that they can take care of their child. And, you know, in the context of my situation, if I was struggling at school or if I, you know, said something at school, um, that would just get reported back home directly to those people who were causing me harm. And so, um, you know, I'd say in those experiences, I sort of felt like the people that I, I felt like were potentially could help me, I realized like, even if they wanted to, they didn't know what to do. And I didn't have the language as a child to um, to really explain what my needs were. Um, and moving, you know, forward um, with that, you know, when I went into the the program, that the group home that I was referring to, you know, that that program, it was a, a, a faith-based uh, program. And I was like relative, I would say, I mean, I was kind of raised in a faith-based home, but, um, you know, obviously there was a lot of problems in that home. So I don't think they were necessarily living their values that they spoke out loud. Um, But that doesn't mean that I wasn't sort of indoctrinated into like the belief system of the church that I went to and, um, you know, sort of this idea and concept of what was and wasn't okay and what was and wasn't approved of. And so, you know, even, you know, my early teenage years when um, all of us are sort of in that self-discovery stage of finding out who we are, um, definitely realized I wasn't like most of my friends, you know, um, they'd be, 
you know, who, which boy do you have a crush on? And, and it was like, um, I would just pick the boy I wanted to be. <laughs> and it's just be like, you know, thinking like, no, I actually just really want his hair and muscles and the girls to like me, like they like him. Um, you know, so there are these, these situations that even like, I couldn't, um, I couldn't explore my own identity or even have like genuine conversations because I just didn't, it seemed like everyone around me sort of ascribed to the same beliefs and no one was talking about anything. And so um, that made it really challenging when I went into that program. I so I felt sort of safe um, in the sense that I wasn't with my trafficker anymore. The staff members really seemed to love and care about the kids who were in the program. And I think that that was genuine, but a lot of them were, you know, Bible college graduates with good hearts and good intentions that had zero training when it came to, you know, dealing with kids who've experienced trauma um, and who are also raised in very similar belief systems where they may or may not um, have understood you know, the complexities are like what it means to be LGBTQ or is that something that they even see as being okay? And so that just added a lot of layers, obviously, to that situation. And so because I felt safe and out of my situation and I did feel loved and I so badly wanted the approval of these people who could offer me what I so badly needed, um, I went along with that and I, I tried as as much as I could to do what I felt like um, would help me to be loved and to be cared about and to be told that I was good. And so, um, you know, what happened in that process was that I was really damaging myself and the environment that I was in was damaging me because it was really telling me that like, as long as you live the expectations of everyone else, you'll get the care that you want. But as soon as, you know, I got to places where I, I I would panic, like an example would be like, I had written in a journal about, you know, being attracted to girls and like things like this, my journal got confiscated. And so now I'm in this counseling session, you know, where like, I did air quotes, because I realized this is gonna be a, <laughs> this is gonna be an audio, um, because they weren't real counselors. That's why I did that. But um, when I was in a counseling session, it's like they were approaching me like, about how this is something that can be worked through and this is a struggle. And and so these concepts were what was taught to me. And, um, you know, I got all of my clothes taken away, which were like, you know, boy clothes that I always wore. I like, you know, had Old Spice deodorant and all of these things that were like normal to me and made me feel comfortable. And it was like, as soon as they realized like there was like sexual identity or sexual orientation that was not heterosexual or gender issues they were like oh no we have to fix this and just like took everything away from me and were like you gotta wear two items of makeup a day you know here are five dresses and like the panic that I experienced as a child of feeling so uncomfortable in my body and so uncomfortable um it was like it I mean, I don't know how to describe it except to say that it really kind of destroyed me from the inside out and I felt so fully unsafe. Um, and then I also learned that the only way to get out was to play the game, you know, like to move up in the program, I had to have spiritual growth to move up in the program, I had to be doing what they thought was right. And so um, even the survival within a program that was supposed to be helpful was literally just survival mechanisms that I had to heal from and, you know, dig out later um, what the truth was. And so eventually it got to a point where I couldn't do those things that they were asking me to do. Um, and I just kind of became what a lot of people would call defiant, uh, which was really just 
this isn't working for me. This is never going to work for me. I'm not doing it anymore. Um, but I think that 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 sometimes defiance is a good thing, um, particularly in those types of situations, right? And we often just sort of put this lens of like defiant kids and defiant youth that are um, problematic, but a lot of those kids are strong and they're, you know, recognizing that something's wrong. Um, and so uh, that, you know, that period was like, you know, when I got pushed out of the program. And so I think um, at that time, what I needed and what I was looking for when it came to accessing recovery or accessing services, like I didn't have a place that I trusted. I didn't have a place that I knew that I could go to. Um, and, and I don't think that like, I mean, there were people who approached me, right? There were people who approached me to, to help, um, but I didn't trust those people. And those people always came to me with the assumption that I wanted to get out of the situation that I was in. And to be honest at that time, engaging in the commercial sex industry was something that, yes, I made a choice to do. Um, was it like ideal? Would I have gone that route if I didn't have the experiences that I had? Probably not. Um, but the reality was I'd already experienced a lot of sexual abuse. Sex was not sacred to me. Um, it was not something that, you know, like it, it didn't carry the meaning that it carries to so many people because of the experiences that I had had. Um, and people already had the assumption that I was just a super sexualized person because I was gay, you know, because I was queer. There's just so much that was kind of behind that. Um, and so, you know, there were oftentimes it would be these religious groups that would come out and do like outreach. And, you know, when they were coming, doing that, it was like they would give us things that were, it was like nice to get these little gift bags and stuff. And at the same time, it was like, I knew that their help was going to be pulling me into a program like the one that I just got out of, or at least that was my assumption. And so I think that there is this idea of like, we have this help. You don't have to live this life. And I'm going, I don't want your life. Um, I actually feel more in control of my life here. Um, I actually feel like I can take care of myself here. And I am surrounded by other queer people who let me know that it is okay to be who I am. And eventually I did move out of the commercial sex industry and I didn't do it because, you know, somebody came and rescued me out of it. I did it because I was able to find you know, other alternatives and other jobs and other things like that. And, um, and so, yeah, I, it's complex. Um, so I think, you know, even saying that, uh, it, that the barriers for me, I think were probably different than the barriers that would exist for a lot of other folks, because we all thrive in different environments. Um, yeah. So. Wow. No, Wade, that was, I mean, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. And I sort of see you in these, three seasons where, well, really the first two, right? With within your family system and then within this like aftercare system that's supposed to help you. Um, I think the main difference is probably the the intentions were supposedly good in the aftercare situation, but intentions aside, the impact was robbing you of your autonomy. It was um, traumatizing and kind of exploiting you in, in both situations to sort of fit a mold and fit within the certain system and structure that someone else had created that didn't allow you again to operate with autonomy or your genuine identity, um, however you would want to express it. And I think there's a lot for folks in the anti, a lot, a lot for folks in the anti-trafficking space to, to learn from that. Um, and I can definitely see the way that you, 
the way you led us through all of that, why survival sex or becoming a sex worker would be a freeing choice because like, is it the structure and system that you would prefer? Probably not, but at least you have your autonomy, which it turns out is like in a lot of ways more important than the structure you're operating with. So that's just, um, thank you again for, for walking us through all that. I know that in, in another conversation, we've talked a little bit about gatekeeping, um, in terms of, including or excluding marginalized identities as leaders in the anti-trafficking sector. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, like the the gatekeeping that you've witnessed or experienced yourself when it comes to specifically anti-trafficking sector and maybe trying to um, claim your voice as a leader? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's, it's really interesting, you know, how the anti-trafficking sector really has kind of changed and evolved. Um, I think one thing is that there really has been a positive change I've seen in, in, um, you know, calling out the fact that, um, there are intersectional um, approaches and that there are people with very different experiences and that those with lived experiences should really be leading um, in this space. But what's interesting is, you know, this really, this sector, the anti-trafficking sector really started by people without lived experience. And when you look at movements in the past, like, you know, the feminist movement, the LGBTQ movement, um, the Black Lives Matter movement, they're all led by individuals who are the most impacted and who are actually actually those who are fighting for their own rights and who are speaking for themselves. Whereas the anti-trafficking movement started by religious organizations, um, not just religious organizations, but also, you know, government organizations, um, nonprofit organizations, sort of coming in with the assumption that this is the worst of the worst that could happen to anybody. And here's how we're going to fix it and zeroing in on things like criminalizing perpetrators. And while certainly I think that that's something that many survivors want to see and feel good about, it's also something that a lot of survivors have directly been harmed by. In fact, you know, a lot of survivors mm. themselves have been criminalized um, for trafficking yeah. or for uh, criminal activities that they engaged in uh, by force because of their trafficker or because of survival. And so um, it's interesting because as we've moved forward in the anti-trafficking sector, and I think it's sort of in a space of we're like, is this a movement? Is this a sector? Is it both? And um, I think it is both in some ways, but I think that the movement part uh, can and should be led by people with lived experience. And yeah. what's interesting is that there is a huge group of people with lived experience who are going, you're doing it wrong. You're all doing it wrong. Um, and then you might have like some individuals who are sort of going along with this is how it's been for the last 10 years. And this would have worked really well for me. And they're sort of speaking out with these organizations and sharing their stories and um, and their stories are valid and their experiences are valid, but uh, they don't necessarily have that full understanding of what other people's experiences are like. And so, um, you know, we all tend to try to find voices that validate the beliefs that we already have. That's a very mm. human thing. Um, but I think that the challenge is to ask ourselves, you know, who is missing from the table? And when we, when we see, you know, people speaking about trafficking, when we see conferences that are, that are about trafficking, you know, who are the primary leaders? And, you know, as a person who's been in this space and who was even a, you know, a, a speaker for like five years, just traveling, I can tell you that the majority of them are white women um, who came from relatively conservative backgrounds who were kind of met that like perfect victim type of, of, 
you know, when I say that perfect victim in the sense that like they can easily be seen as a victim. They maybe yeah. don't have the longest criminal history. Um, you know, they were maybe trafficked at a really young age. So it's easy for people to see them as um being victimized. Whereas if you were to fast forward to like my secondary situation, and let's say like we weren't even looking at the family trafficking, um, but if I was just homeless and ended up in a program and ended out on the street, why did I end up in that situation? Why did I end up engaging in commercial sex, um, you know, and traffic and being trafficked? Um, and looking at those situations, like it is actually the system and and that sort of gatekeeping even I think that led me there. Um, and so when it comes to gatekeeping specifically in the movement, I think that um, it's really easy to sort of look at like, hey, we have to we have to make our donors happy. Um, you know, like if we say X, Y, and Z, maybe it's a little too risky. Maybe our donors aren't ready for that. And what are we gonna do if we don't have the million dollars to run this program or this budget? Um, and that makes total sense um, and we're operating in this world of capitalism and yet at the same time like what is the most important and how are we contributing to these cycles of you know kind of the same things over and over again because you know it's been decades that you know people of color have been speaking out saying hey we're still going to jail um <laughs> Or where, you know, queer people are speaking out saying, hey, you know, you're pushing policies that are harming trans people. You're pushing policies in the name of, of anti-trafficking that are harming me. Um, and no one's listening. And so who gets to determine who should be listened to and who shouldn't? And so, yeah. you know, it's a very complex um, thing. But I think that, um, and I don't think there's an easy answer to it necessarily, Um you know, but I think that um, it's anything worth doing is not going to be easy. Um, and anything worth doing is um, you're going to run into problems and you're going to run into some stressful situations where you have to have uncomfortable conversations. And what happens when those happen in public in a cancel culture? You know, like mm. well, this is real, right? This is the world that we live in. Um, and sometimes it's scary to even try to do the right thing if you're worried that that's going to shut you down. And so um, I think there are a lot of like complex reasons of why things are the way that they are. Um, but what I would say is, um, you know, I think that um, we just need to start asking ourselves who isn't here. And when you're sitting around a table where maybe survivors have been invited there, you know, is there, who are some of the most marginalized identities? Who are some of those folks that we know are not receiving help? You know, I have, I get calls every single week or emails every single week from people asking me if I know of a place for this trans woman to go or this young trans boy to go. And I don't even do direct services, but mm. I'm being asked constantly because I'm the only trans people that these people know who speaks out on these issues. And so, um, when we think about those things, you know, that there are still like no homes for trans kids. So um, when we like think like, why aren't these people at the table or we don't have anybody to invite, even a lot of the reasons that, you know, when people are living in a state of survival, uh, they can't even get to a place where they're able to heal and recover enough to talk about things without it being damaging. So like, 
there's so much work that needs to be done to get there. And so I think a big part of that is, you know, starting to ask those questions of like, how can we support? How can we make sure that these people can get here? You know, can we provide a scholarship? Can we make sure that we're paying people and we're paying them well? Um, you know, when I look back at my situation of being approached by people who were trying to help me with the best intentions when I was on the street as a queer kid, um, you know, who I know I would have heard and would have listened and would have followed if there was a trans woman who was out there who was like, hey, you know, I have a home for LGBTQ kids. And if you want to come here, you can be yourself. You can, you know, you don't have to engage in this. Um, but we're also like, not going to turn you away because you have. And that would be a space where I feel home, where I feel like these people, they're not trying to change me. They're not trying to tell me they know what's best for me uh, because it worked for them or it worked for people that they knew, but they understand my experience. And I think that all of us ultimately feel more safe and more comfortable um, when we're around people that we know have, uh, have a true understanding of that. And so, um, that was a very long-winded answer to the question. Um, it was great. But I think, um, yeah, it has a lot of layers. <laughs> At Dress Ember, we approach human trafficking as an intersectional issue, recognizing that there are multiple overlapping forms of systemic oppression involved. With this in mind, we created the Dress Ember Network, which is comprised of 20 different organizations supporting programs in advocacy, prevention, intervention, and survivor empowerment. When you support Dress Ember, you help dismantle trafficking holistically and in a way that prioritizes survivors' needs and voices. Make an impact today at dressember.org slash donate. Yeah, I, I think you brought up so many crucial points. Um, it is like absolutely necessary for both the sector and the movement to be led by survivors with lived experience and like everyone I think needs a gut check that there are so many diverse lived experiences and survivors with diverse identities. And when we prioritize bringing survivors with marginalized identities to the table, we have such a better chance of meeting the needs for people like them, for people with similar lived experiences or similar identities to them, and a much greater chance of creating safe spaces and safe relationships where true healing and true recovery and um and, and trust can be built. You know, when when you're receiving what is perceived as conditional help, I think it's so difficult to build trust um, and to be able to reclaim community and reclaim relationships and a place in society. Um, and I'd love your take on what sustained liberation really looks like. I mean, you touched on, you know, having multiple options for primary employment and having scholarships to pursue whatever vocational or educational 
uh, dreams you might have. That's something that's really important to us at Dressember. We launched a survivor scholarship program last year that offers flexible academic scholarships um, for exactly that, for whatever a survivor would want to pursue so that you don't necessarily have to exclusively be a survivor leader sharing your story in the sector. If you want to become a real estate agent or a cosmetologist or a licensed therapist or pursue your PhD, whatever it may be, um, we're just so committed to making sure that survivors have options in that way. And so, yeah, I would just love to have a further conversation on what sustained liberation looks like for all survivors. Yeah, that's such a great, that's a great even phrase, like sustained liberation, like that's so important. And we think of like, what is that? And, and, and oftentimes, you know, the idea of freedom or liberation, we just assume comes with the day I left my trafficking situation, right? And um, recognizing that that's not that's not true. That yeah. liberation is in fact something that um, has to continue and that is a continual ongoing process. Um, you know, you, you, we, we talked about earlier just how uh, a person who's experienced uh, trauma or exploitation can just end up in another situation where they're experiencing more trauma and more exploita- exploitation. Um, and that really does come from just not having your needs met. And what's, what's kind of wild to me is that those needs are so basic and they have not changed in literally thousands of years we all need a roof over our head we all need food we all Mm. need work um, and the ability to you know just provide for our basic needs including safety Um, and what does that look like and you know like sustained liberation I think um, when we think about that I think that really the um, the importance of of employment, um, of full-time employment and of employment that truly is, um, is sustainable and not in the sense that like, I'm not, you know, $40,000 a year, um, is not sustainable anymore. Like, you know, we actually have the worst economy that we've seen in a very long time. And, um, you know, there's just so many bits and pieces, right? So like, I think when we think about it, it's not just about the having a job piece, but like things that so many people often think of as, um, sort of a, what's the word, like a, a luxury or a benefit, um, and asking ourselves, like, is that real? Like, are these things luxuries and benefits? Because we should all eat, we should all have a roof over our head. But like, what about taking your kids on vacation? Is that just a luxury that like, not everyone deserves? Because like, uh, what happens when your kids are tired, your kids are overwhelmed, like, these are things that are actually just human. Um, and even like thinking through like the access to health insurance. And if you're working part time, you may not have access to health insurance. If you're working independent contracts, you may not have access to health insurance. And so many individuals that have gone through a lot of physical trauma, sexual trauma, um, have long-term consequences from having experienced those traumas and I've often worked you know these side jobs and kind of side hustles and you know part-time work here or worked at a at a place where uh, maybe they didn't have the the benefits that they needed access to or weren't getting paid enough money to be able to put you know anything aside and so I think that the the interesting thing is that like as we look through those you know what happens when a person gets that for the first time and I know we talked a little bit about this the other day but my role um you know when I work at Survivor Alliance the organization that I work 
for now. Um, I'm their associate director of employment pathways. And so like what we work on is creating um, employment pathways for survivors to find sustainable employment options um, where they're not required to, you know, make their career out of sharing their story and um, and what that looks like and, you know, what those needs are. And it's difficult to kind of push for what what the what the needs really are and that's like you know hey 50 like what if we we talk about fifty thousand dollars a year as the starting place and it's like woo like not even a lot of people who aren't trafficking survivors are making that in nonprofit worlds right like mm. it's not just trafficking survivors who are being exploited it's poor people everywhere <laughs> um i mean like let's have that talk right <laughs> mm. like um but in thinking about that like you know, I, when I finally came into a role where I had, you know, great health insurance and was getting paid enough money that I could meet my deductible, it was like, hey, like now I'm taking off work every four weeks because I have a dentist appointment or now I have two weeks off because I have to have a surgery because I wasn't able to take care of myself for the last four years or, um, and then what happens is like, whoa, this person's, this, my work was not like this, but this is how it could come up is like, hey, this person's taking advantage of our sick policy. Hey, this person's not showing up to work. Um, you know, are they even dedicated? We can't just give this person $50,000 a year to not show up, right? And we don't even think about the fact that these basic human rights issues and basic abilities to take care of ourselves have built up and that people actually, it is going to take time before mm. people even get to a place where they're no longer living in survival. Mm. Um, and so again, I'm just a long-winded guy, I guess. Um, <laughs> but that's a, you know, a big, a big answer. I think we just have to challenge ourselves uh, um, and, and push ourselves and push others, you know, in the philanthropy world. Um, I think that is one of the biggest places where people can make a difference. You know, there's so much stipulations on funding, um, so much stipulations on what can and can't be used. Um, and oftentimes there isn't a focus on, you know, uh, money to pay survivors for full-time positions, to pay them, you know, good wages where they're able to take care of maybe the $50,000 in debt they have to their trafficker. Like the, there are some real serious things. And so, um, hmm. you know, uh, it's, it's a, it's a long process. And, and I think that, you know, a really big part of it is, um, is that, that humanity and the grace and understanding of treating people as humans and not making assumptions. You know, we live in a world that likes to say, people don't like to work these days. And like, we also live in a world where we all just went through a pandemic. We're all exhausted and we all literally are just like trying to get by. And that's not even considering any trauma that anyone went through before. And so just coming back to that, um, I think is really important. Yeah. And, and I think it's on the organization. It's, it's their burden and responsibility to be trauma informed when it comes to hiring survivors, like you, you, you do need that understanding that, as you said, it takes a long time to get out of crisis mode. I also, I love what you said about like liberation, not being like an event, you know, or like a moment. And the idea of like sustained liberation is it's ongoing. But I also kind of heard you saying, that recovery or healing is the same way too, where it's like, okay, if we, if we're embracing this idea of sustained liberation, like, can we also move towards embracing a continual healing? 
journey. And that includes all different physical needs and financial needs. And there's just so many complexities that come with, like you said, being human, not just being someone who's gone through a major trauma, but especially relatively fresh off the trauma or in now a chapter of liberation and healing, that that's going to be a process for a long time. I think understanding that um, in the anti-trafficking sector is like step one, you know, like, can, can we get there as, as a sector? And then, and then ideally like help the, help the larger society also understand that. So then with all their eagerness to, well, we hope eagerness to employ (laughs) survivors, there's also an understanding of like, okay, this is going to be a journey. It's people are messy. Um, it's not just survivors that are, that have a messy journey, but understanding like, there's a continual healing and recovery that happens. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and something, one other thing that I, I really, you know, kind of wanted to point out that I feel like is connected to is particularly, you know, since we are talking about um, nonprofits and the anti-trafficking sector specifically, and, you know, sort of how that responsibility falls on us as organizations to, you know, create spaces where we can engage and employ survivors and do it well, um, is also just like to be, to recognize the fact that, you know, as a person who works in a nonprofit and as you all who work in a nonprofit, anybody who does also recognizes how challenging it is to truly get funding that is unrestricted and recognizing too that so many of these nonprofit organizations, especially, you know, the ones that are kind of smaller and like getting up off the ground or those who are survivor led, right? You're in these positions where, um, maybe you need to grow and you have so many needs within the organization. Um, that maybe you don't have the funding to actually employ somebody like, you know, you want to employ a survivor. Um, But again, we're talking about all of these um, barriers that have, that exist for not just, you know, for, for marginalized people. Right. And like why on paper, um, though those who look more capable or who have the skill set to maybe be able to help an organization grow um, are not always those same people who have had all of these, experiences and it's not to say that people that survivors there are clearly capable survivors intelligent survivors like who absolutely can get there but the reason it's so difficult to find a vast pool of trans women of color who are ready to take over this position it's not because they don't exist but because they're still living in survival Mm. and so that it's the combination i think of recognizing that yes this is our responsibility and at the same time it goes beyond the organization it goes to those who are giving who are giving, who are saying, we support anti-trafficking, we want to end this, to be able to recognize that in order to get there, we have to provide those scholarships, we have to provide that job training, we have to provide, you know, childcare while these people are able to get this done, so that they're even able to get into those spaces, because the reality is that, that it, why do we always see the same people make it to the end of the pool? And that's, again, you know, yes, that's in the anti-trafficking sector, but that's literally everywhere. That's why, you know, we don't see um, people in those positions as much as they should be is because of the the fight and how long it takes for a person to truly kind of gain that experience to get in that space when they're constantly just sort of, you know, fighting to survive. Yeah, yeah. Wade, I really appreciate all of your answers and the the nuances that you've brought up and, you know, the questions that lead to more questions. I think this is that's like where the good stuff is. So thank you for for getting us all thinking 
And I mean, I feel my brain in like problem solving mode, which is not necessarily like, you know, the the best mode to be in, but like I'm my gears are turning and I hope I, th- I would venture to guess our listeners will be in the same position and, and feel challenged in a really good way. Um, I want to ask our last question, which is something we ask all our guests. Um, and that is what is one thing that you wish people knew about human trafficking? Yeah, I think this will just kind of be a reiteration of everything that we talked about. And, um, to me, that really is just highlighting the diversity of experiences, Um, And recognizing that, you know, um, those people who have lived experience are absolutely the people who should be leading this movement. Um, And at the same time, um, you know, I have lived experience and yet I I still can't give the advice that would help, you know, a a young woman of color or like, you know, there are so... Uh, or a a person who is physically disabled, like their needs are different. My needs are different. Our histories are different. How we were trafficked was different. Um, And so recognizing that like, while we are in this space, um, thankfully where we are truly saying like, yes, let people with lived experience talk. We want people with lived experience to bring in, to remember, let's cycle who we're bringing in and not invite those same people back and back. But if we say, hey, okay, we had somebody who who represented those with a, a disability, you know, let's like, have we, have we worked with Asian survivors? Have we worked with immigrants? Have we worked with, because those needs are so different and those experiences are so different that I can share all of my best advice about what in, what law enforcement could have done, what social workers could have done, uh, what you know, service providers should have done. And in fact, was literally in a focus group yesterday with a group of other survivors and the advice that I gave that would have helped me, somebody like spoke up and was like, that would have got me in so much trouble from my pimp. And I was like, ooh, um, I'm so glad we're all here because the truth and reality is like, there is not one answer. Um, and there is not one experience and trafficking, um, the experience is always changing and evolving as culture changes and evolves. And so just making sure that, um, that we really, really kind of drive that home is to understand that, um, there is not one answer. And if we're not bringing groups to the table with different experiences, we're not actually really, um, ever going to end this, this issue and particularly never going to, um, to change it for those who are the most vulnerable. Hmm. Yeah, I think you're totally right. Like the space continues to change. Our culture continues to change and we need to keep up um, because that's the only way that survivors are going to get the help that they need. So Wade, I thank you so much for the time today. This was such a special conversation. I know Blythe and I both learned so much. Yeah. Uh, the December community is going to learn so much from yeah. this conversation. And we're just really grateful for the time and energy mm-hmm. that you spent today with us. It, it's been it's been really great. And I'm grateful for the, the work that you're doing and, and looking forward to, to seeing that impact. Thanks for listening to Things Survivors Wish You Knew, a Dressember podcast. We are all needed in the fight against human trafficking, and Dressember is here to equip and empower you to advocate for the dignity of all people. 
We host a style challenge every December where people pledge to wear a dress or tie for 31 days. The style challenge provides a fun, impactful way for even the busiest person to engage in this important issue. And it's proven to be a powerful way to raise awareness and vital funding for anti-trafficking work. Since 2013, thousands of advocates have raised roughly $16 million to fight human trafficking from every angle around the world. This year is the 10th anniversary of the Dressember Style Challenge, and we need your advocacy to help make our biggest impact to date. You can join the Dressember community in the fight against human trafficking at dressember.org fundraise, or learn more at dressember.org slash how it works. And remember, it's bigger than a dress.